Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, how digital technology is reaching people who don't have access to banks. Digital identity in the emerging markets is people having a smartphone connected to the internet. And if you give them a financial identity without having the digital identity, they continue to belong to the world of have-nots. And Philip Coggan transforms into Doctor Who, gets in his TARDIS and looks back at 12 years of his Buttonwood column. The financial markets, like a teenager who crashes a car and leaves their parents with a bill, have done a lot better than the economy. The global economy has never really recovered to the health it was before that crash and the financial markets have. First, the last couple of weeks have seen torrid times in Argentina, where the central bank has had to respond to the currency weakening steadily and then faster and faster by raising interest rates an extraordinary three times. The policy rate now stands at 40%. That's created worries not just about Argentina, but about emerging markets more broadly. Simon Cox joins me down the line. Simon, last week saw a bit of a wobble in emerging markets. What was that about? There were a couple of reasons. Uh, One global, the other more specific to Argentina. Globally, we've seen a pickup in US Treasury yields. So some sense that the US economy is perhaps going to do better than the rest of the world. Some threat of inflation meant that the cost of borrowing in the United States went up. And Treasury yields on on 10-year bonds went above 3% briefly. It's the first time in several years they've done that. That typically makes it harder for emerging markets to finance their borrowing, especially those emerging markets that have borrowed heavily in dollars. And then we also saw in Argentina this ongoing struggle they have with inflation. Uh, They inherited a very bad inflation problem uh, from the previous government, and they'd hoped to deal with it quite quickly, but it's proven very stubborn. And the central bank said, well, you know, it's proven so difficult to fight this inflation, we're going to take it a bit more gradually. And that policy seems to have backfired. It led to a pickup again in inflation. And so the central bank reversed course and has hiked uh, interest rates very dramatically uh, in order to try and prove to the population that it's really serious about getting inflation under control. And what's the risk of that sort of very dramatic action? Are they going to push themselves into recession? Well, it's going to uh, hurt the economy for sure. The economy in Argentina has actually been doing reasonably well, but the, uh, the peso had weakened. They thought that that would then feed through into this inflationary problem. And so they've been trying to uh, cushion the decline in the peso by selling some foreign exchange reserves and also by raising interest rates uh, three times all during in-between meetings, so not scheduled meeting hikes. All of this generated quite a lot of alarm, excitement, and some of that spread more broadly into uh, sentiment globally about emerging markets, which is a bit ironic because Argentina actually is no longer officially an emerging market. It's no longer a member of the most popular benchmark for emerging stock markets, but people still very much put it in that category. But I think in many ways Argentina is... In some ways, it's more like an emerging market than the real emerging markets. That is, uh, it has some of the problems that we traditionally associate with emerging markets. 
uh, but that other emerging markets have successfully managed to uh, wean themselves off. Things like struggles with inflation. So in other emerging markets, inflation is actually very low and also heavy dollar borrowing. Uh, in many emerging markets, they borrow much more heavily in local currencies now which makes them less vulnerable to changes in conditions in America. So Argentina is an extraordinary story over the last number of decades. It's a very specific sort of place. They um, you know, they sequestered savings in the Coralito. They had a default. Um, they've had some really crazy economic theories. But all of that said, uh, there are other countries who have some weaknesses. You say most of them now borrow locally more than they used to, but some don't. And most of them seem to be handling inflation better, but some don't. Where are the markets looking for next Well, Turkey uh, is another um, focus for alarm. Uh, Again, uh, it's got quite a lot of foreign currency borrowing, partly in euros, partly in dollars. It's also an overheating economy. Uh, It's, again, been growing very quickly, but mostly because of uh, government stimulus uh, and with a very large trade deficit. Again, a hallmark of emerging markets in the past that's now less typical, especially of emerging markets in Asia. So Turkey is a source of worry. And then uh, Russia obviously had to handle uh, sanctions, although that economy has been run quite tightly. Uh, And uh, closer to where I am in Pakistan, there's, um, again, this is an economy that frequently gets into trouble. It only recently left an IMF programme. They have elections coming up, and that has contributed again to uh, overspending, uh, a surge in imports and a worrying trade deficit. Thanks, Simon. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and would like to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, nearly a quarter of the world's population don't use a bank at all. Many have no access to financial services, but in an increasingly digital world that is slowly changing, as Simon Long, the international editor at The Economist, found out. Hackney in northeast London prides itself on being one of the capital's most ethnically diverse boroughs. The council identifies only 36% of the population as white British. This is Dalston Junction, a now trendy part of the borough. It buzzes with a down-at-heel sort of cosmopolitanism. A Caribbean bakery, the Halal Dixie Chicken Shop, the Afro World Wig and Extensions Parlour. But Dalston is also diverse in wealth. Nearby gentrification is sprouting in a few trendy coffee bars, but Hackney is ranked as the 11th most deprived of more than 400 local authority areas in Britain. So it's a good place to look at the problem of financial exclusion. Dawson, for example, has more than the usual number of charity-run second-hand shops and discount pound shops. And there are at least four pawnbrokers. And there's a branch of Oakham, which aims to compete with the pawnbrokers by lending to the financially excluded on less predatory terms. Why not ask Oakham about a special deal we have for you, which includes flexible repayment options. It's only available in store, so come in soon. I've been speaking to one of its clients, a young single mother called Stephanie. When I was 18, I had a credit card from Barclays and I didn't pay it back. And when I got older, I started to pay back the interest and what I had. It just didn't seem to repair my credit rating. There's some list somewhere where where you're down as a bad credit. Probably. Before I had kids, I had a a Wonga loan. That, I think, put me off having... It's a payday loan company. Yeah, it just put me off having loans from different companies like that. I would never do it again. It was only that I was in a really hard point in my life that I went to Oakham. Oakham, set up in 2006, advertises itself as an alternative to doorstep lenders 
the traditional financiers for those beneath the bar set by mainstream banks. I also spoke to its founder and boss, Frédéric Nzey. This store was the third store we opened. Originally, we were bridging the last mile by having retail location, and now we're using mostly smartphone. So, you know, everybody has a smartphone in their pocket. Having an app that can reach out across the UK to even remote area where it would never be economical to have a store. So we have a lot of customers who are working in farming in East Anglia. You know, they have a smartphone, we couldn't have a store there. Yeah? So a smartphone has enabled us to get the last mile in a much cheaper way. Reaching those without access to a bank is a worldwide problem, and of course a much bigger one in the developing world. Nearly a third of the world's adult population have no bank account, but thanks to technology, especially the mobile phone, financial inclusion is making great strides. Hundreds of firms, such as M-Pesa in Kenya, now reach hundreds of millions of customers. But of course... Access to payment services or even a bank account does not in itself mean financial inclusion. But it does make it easier for charities and businesses to extend microcredit, very small loans to impoverished borrowers who typically lack collateral, steady employment or a verifiable credit history. Simpson says Sahulat Pai, Ab Barune Mulkse Ratn, Fari Mangwai, Finka Microfinance Bank Limited Ne, Apni Branchless Banking App, Simpson Kizariye. One country where experts see great potential for expanding financial inclusion is Pakistan. Only a quarter of adults have bank accounts, but mobile phone penetration is high, signal coverage good, and regulation largely welcoming. So it's a market fintechs and microlenders alike are excited about. I travelled to Lahore in Pakistan to talk to the local operation of Finca, a global non-profit microfinance network. I asked its chief executive, Mudasa Akil, to explain one of its products called SimSim. SimSim is a groundbreaking digital wallet. It allows anyone to open a digital wallet in almost real time, and then all the payments on this wallet are free. And as a result, you can invite your friends and family, so it grows virally. That sounds both a very disruptive business model and one that has no way of making any money. I mean, how does it work? Our Hypothesis is that pricing transaction is the 19th century model. And in the 21st century, you will not make money by pricing transaction events. You will make money around transactions. Think about Facebook. Think about uh, Skype. Think about WhatsApp. And other digital events like taking digital photographs. None of them would have scaled at the level that they have achieved if they were priced. So they use this digital wallet for their entire day-to-day transactions. And the real prize here is the data. So the insight that you get into the transaction behavior is that allows you then to sell them value-added services like credit, insurance, etc. So increasingly, financial services customers are paying for them, not just by paying a fee or through the interest rate, but through the data they provide. That's true in the rich world, too. Stephanie, whom we heard from earlier in Dalston, was excluded from finance because she had no credit score. But lenders like Oakham have access to all sorts of other data about her, especially since she uses a smartphone to do her banking and a whole range of other activities. But what about poor countries like Pakistan, where most people still use simple or so-called feature phones with no internet access? I put that point to Kasif Shahid of Finja, the fintech with which Finca is in partnership in Pakistan. You know, we believe that 
if people don't have smartphones, then they continue to belong to what we call the have-nots. Digital identity in the emerging markets is people having a smartphone connected to the internet. And if you give them a financial identity without having the digital identity, they continue to belong to the world of have-nots. So the trick is to go out and construct products where if people don't have a smartphone, then the initial wallet offer is bundled with a smartphone and people go out and spread the product, make enough money and pay for the smartphone as their first loan and now they have a digital identity and a financial identity which is the baseline for you to start to climb up the opportunity pyramid. That's the greatest equalizer in our way. Recent figures produced by the World Bank show enormous advances around the world in the number of people with access to mobile money or bank accounts. And that progress is largely the result of the spread of digital money. But many in the field are still frustrated that progress is not faster, that many accounts remain largely unused, and that, for example, the gap between men and women's access to finance is not narrowing. The World Bank asked in a survey why people do not have accounts. By far the most common answer was a simple one, not enough money. And that's not a problem technology alone can solve. Last week we spoke to Professor Mariana Matsukato about how society measures value. Tom Arnold emailed us to say, clearly the greatest value creators in a democratic society are parents and educators. The ideal end result after 18 to 22 years of education and a lifetime of influence is a productive member of society who will go on to parent, educate and influence the next generation in turn. The direct cost of failure to properly parent, educate and influence can be read easily in the balance sheets of organisations that provide police and prison services. Thanks, Tom. Let us know what you think about any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, a time lord in the shape of Philip Coggan. The columnist is sort of packing away his sonic keyboard and has written his last buttonwood. In it, he has taken his TARDIS and looked back over 12 years' worth of columns which analysed the financial markets. Which ones stood the test of time and which ones might have been time wasted? Philip is here with me. Philip, what did you learn looking back over 12 years' worth of Buttonwoods? I think the first thing was not to confuse the financial markets with the economy. I was probably underestimated how much damage the financial markets could cause by themselves. You know, the uh, collapse of banks in 2008, the trillion-dollar bailouts and all the rest of it, uh, and overestimated the link between them and the economy. So coming on... At the end of my column, the S&P 500 is about double its level when it started. So if you look back over that period, you might think, well, nothing went wrong. But in the interim, having collapsed and then been rescued by the central banks, the financial markets, like a teenager who crashes a car and leaves their parents with the bill, have done a lot better than the economy. The global economy has never really recovered to the health it was before that crash, and the financial markets have. And so when you started 12 years ago... What were the worries that you were looking forward to? I was worried for something not as apocalyptic to happen, that markets were too high, that there was too much debt, and this would uh, cause economic damage by the sort of traditional uh, Wall Street crash, if you like. But what we saw, and the other big factor I 
underestimated was how much central banks could do to rescue the markets and, of course, perhaps avert a Great Depression. But if I had predicted in an early column that you'd have had negative interest rates, you'd have had negative government bond yields, you'd have had the European Central Bank seen as this incredibly cautious, uh, stuck-in-the-mud type institution buying the government bonds of European member nations. Nobody would have believed anything I wrote. And all that has happened in the last 12 years. So it's astonishing how much has changed in that period. Any columns you'd like to go back in time and exterminate? (laughs) I think probably I worried too much about inflation. So I thought quantitative easing would lead to more inflation than it has done. In the past, if when you saw governments get financed by the central bank, which really is what has been going on, uh, then that has tended to lead to inflation. That hasn't happened. And I, the best analogy, I think, is that uh, the commercial banks, when they contracted, emptied the bath by pulling out the plug and the central banks opened up the taps and the two things cancelled each other out. So we probably did need quantitative easing to counteract the effect of the commercial banks. The trouble is, if you look, wanted to look forward, that we've had all this quantitative easing And we haven't yet reversed it. We're only just starting. And who knows what will happen when that does. Now, you say look forward. Uh, I think you said in your column that your TARDIS could only look backwards. And that's a very, very neat way of getting around the job of an actual columnist, which is to look forward. What should we be looking forward to on Money Talks? We should be looking to see what happens as uh, central banks do withdraw that stimulus. There was a nice analogy it was in the magazine last week from uh, Matt King of Citigroup, that it's like a game of musical chairs. The central banks are moving away one chair at a time. There are lots of people who are in the markets expecting them to be, to be liquid. They're buying corporate bonds. They're buying these strange things like volatility ETFs. And when that money gets taken out of the market, someone's chair goes and something collapses. Fortunately, volatility ETFs were quite a small section of the market, but we had a big wobble in February when it happened, the February funk, people called it. Uh, and... The danger is as more of that money is withdrawn, then we have even bigger sectors of the market collapse. The other big thing I think would be lovely to know going forward is what is the long run rate of the economy was the big debate about secular stagnation. I think the forces of demography, which mean that fewer people are going to be working in the economy, will make it very hard to grow the economy at a rapid rate. So what do we do about all that debt? We have a combination of very high debt and the unlikelihood of a sufficient growth to get rid of it. So that means, I think, we're going to have a permanent period of very low interest rates. Yes, bond yields have edged up a bit, but they can't rise far. And now this particular time, Lord, is about to regenerate. Tell us what's next. Well, I will be writing a new column on management and work called Bartleby, after Bartleby the Scrivener, uh, the Herman Melville short story. That will appear towards the end of this month. And of course, there will be a new Buttonwood. Thank you, Philip. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.